the audible of the best in Bitcoin. This is the Crypto Economy. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Crypto Economy. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. I uh, hope you guys have started your Swan Bitcoin savings account. And if you haven't yet, well, there is no better time than now. All you got to do is head over to swanbitcoin.com and just start it up weekly, monthly, whatever you want to do. Okay. We have got, this is actually, uh, today's read will be part one of a two-part series, and we won't be doing part two tomorrow. I think I'm going to save it until kind of the beginning of next week, uh, so we'll, we'll kind of hit this again. Um, but it's Giacomo Zucco's piece, it was released by Bitcoin Magazine, A Treatise on Bitcoin and Privacy. Uh, and this will be part one, A Match Made in the White Paper. So without further ado, let's go ahead and just jump into the article. And uh, then I got some stuff I want to share. And we'll talk a lot about the ideas he lays out here at the end. Again, a treatise on Bitcoin and privacy, part one, a match made in the white paper. Introduction. How one's focus can shift in just two weeks. While today everybody in the Bitcoin space seems more concerned with price fluctuations in response to the global financial panic, understandably so, it's important to remember perennial issues that never go away, like the importance of maintaining your privacy when you transact in Bitcoin. Throughout this month especially, we've been hearing reports of KYC AML compliant exchanges freezing user accounts due to suspected use of CoinJoin software. More on that later. Followed by yet another case of a famous and respected early Bitcoin proponent promoting his new illiquid altcoin as something that will replace Bitcoin, which isn't private enough. If you want to take a short break from global pandemics, financial meltdowns, and price volatility, here's an attempt at analyzing claims, facts, and context of this latest Bitcoin drama. To begin with, in part one of this two-part series, we'll start by looking at the fundamental relationship between Bitcoin and privacy by going back to the beginning with the white paper. Then, in part two, we'll focus on some of the ways that Bitcoin privacy is being maintained and improved upon, and strike down a few red herrings. Money needs privacy. Bitcoin is designed to perform monetary functions. And money needs a strong separation of personal identity from specific monetary units and transactions in order to work sustainably at scale. There are at least two fundamental components to this separation. Deniability. We could call the first component deniability. This describes the possibility for an individual using a monetary tool to credibly deny any connection with it later on. The reason for this is that money has been developed to facilitate individual saving and voluntary exchange among people. But the positive sum game of voluntary exchange is not the only way to increase one's wealth. The other way is the negative sum game of violent confiscation. 
As the sociologist and political economist Franz Oppenheimer brilliantly put it, there are two different paradigms for wealth acquisition within societies. Quote, These are work and robbery, one's own labor and the forcible appropriation of the labor of others. I propose in the following discussion to call one's own labor and the equivalent exchange of one's own labor for the labor of others the economic means for the satisfaction of needs, while the unrequited appropriation of the labor of others will be called the political means. End quote. While the temptation to resort to political means is always present in extended social contexts, it becomes particularly strong when money is involved. The same features that make money an especially good tool for exchange and for storing economically acquired wealth make it also particularly interesting as a target of confiscation and as a way to store politically acquired wealth. Individuals exchanging and storing money are easily and more often targeted by political rent seekers since it's most efficient to rob them than to rob participants in simple barter or insulated hermits who don't exchange at all. Quite often, political organizations prefer to present confiscation as conditional upon the specific type of exchange engaged in by the victim. Taxes, imposts, tolls, tariffs, tributes, fines, bribes, penalties, excise duties, protection money, etc. Privacy in communication is important, and economic exchanges are among the most important sensitive, private, and potentially dangerous forms of communication in adversarial environments. Money talks. Somebody whose financial and commercial life is completely exposed runs a higher risk of suffering robbery, blackmail, kidnapping, or political expropriation. For all these reasons, it becomes paramount for economic agents to be able to detach their own public identity from the specific monetary transactions they have taken part in, and thus, to be able to deny such connection. Fungibility The second component is called fungibility. By this we mean the possibility for an individual receiving a monetary tool to safely ignore any connection between that tool and any particular individual or use case it interacted with in the past. Fungibility is more an economical category than a political one. It basically means that any random amount of money is practically indistinguishable from any other, thus making the validation cost for a money receiver way lower. One $50 bill is as good as any other, and you don't need to know who has used it in the past in order to accept or use it as payment today. Indeed, if a receiver had to evaluate the history of every individual unit, before being able to assess its value, verification costs would increase exponentially. Ironically, one of the relatively recent trends of know-your-customer regulations around the world is indeed that money was mostly adopted as a way for merchants to avoid knowing and trusting their customers. Customers are already somehow required to know their merchant, since they have to trust them about the quality and dependable delivery of the product or service they purchase. But merchants, when they scale up from trivial systems of barter or credit to actual markets, 
use money to be free from the burden of knowing all of their customers. KYC regulation is just a political control tool marketed with a paradoxical expression which exudes economic illiteracy. This isn't an ideological problem, but a functional one. A good cannot easily pass over many hands, as a monetary good is required to do, if every current receiver has to verify the entire political status of every previous owner in order to know how much political risk, including persecution, censorship, taxation, or debt, he is actually inheriting. Non-fungible goods can't work as money. Some goods are ideal for mitigating both deniability and fungibility problems. Bearer instruments, which don't carry the personal information of previous owners, making it easy for everyone to deny having been involved in any specific transaction. Bitcoin, born for privacy. Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin as a tool for privacy. The entire cypherpunk quest, which Satoshi was an active part of and which the Bitcoin experiment is the coronation of, was all about personal and financial privacy. Most of the early messages and publications by Satoshi, including the famous white paper, which devotes a paragraph to it, are heavily concerned with its privacy features. The first consideration made in the white paper about privacy is that centralized online payment intermediaries are easy targets for regulation. As such, it is easy to push these intermediaries to actively mediate disputes and thus to make most transactions reversible. This requirement, as a consequence, forces merchants scared by risks of chargebacks, to be very wary of their customers, hassling them for more information than they would otherwise need. Merchants get pushed back to the KYC paradox once again. Being decentralized and impossible to regulate, Bitcoin cannot be forced to actively mediate disputes. For this reason, Bitcoin transactions can quickly become irreversible, making any inquiry into the personal identity of a payer absolutely redundant and unnecessary. The second consideration concerns the fact that Bitcoin's base layer, the time chain, developed to avoid double spending without the need of a trusted third party, requires the publication of every settlement transaction, thus limiting the chance to apply the traditional privacy-through-obscurity technique of centralized providers. This limitation is mitigated by the anonymity of the cryptographic public keys, which are intended to be used only once without any association with identities to work. In Satoshi's words, quote, The traditional banking model achieves a level of privacy by limiting access to information to the parties involved and the trusted third party. The necessity to announce all transactions publicly precludes this method but privacy can still be maintained by breaking the flow of information in another place, by keeping public keys anonymous. The public can see that someone is sending an amount to someone else, but without information linking the transaction to anyone. This is similar to the level of information released by stock exchanges, where the time and size of individual trades, the quote tape, is made public, 
but without telling who the parties were, end quote. Privacy and trust, all or nothing. An interesting feature of this transparent setting, discussed by Satoshi and by many early Bitcoin contributors and researchers, is the all-or-nothing nature of its privacy guarantees. A trusted third party can indeed promise to keep your sensitive information safe from potential kidnappers, robbers, or stalkers, while still being forced to provide any detail to more powerful political entities, nation-states with their tax agencies, financial authorities, secret services, etc. In a pseudo-anonymous but public setting, it's safe to assume that in every case where the latter type of adversary is able to access sensitive financial information, the former type will find a way as well. When somebody's privacy on the time chain is broken, it is broken to the benefit of all snoopers with an internet connection. Governments, bandits, hackers, business competitors, personal enemies, haters, ex-spouses, etc. This should serve as a strong incentive for users to protect their own chain deniability, thus protecting fungibility for all. Bitcoin base layer transactions, on the other hand, already show perfect fungibility internally. What this means is that although every transaction is public, there is no public data about who, within a certain transaction, was in control of the private keys that spent a specific input or who is now in control of the private keys that will spend a specific output. Bitcoin's rules assure us that the total amount of Satoshis spent with all the inputs is equal to or less than the total amount of Satoshis locked in all the outputs. A transaction can't create inflation. They can only leave out block space fees for miners. But there's technically no way to be sure from public time chain data alone if a transaction with 10 inputs and 10 outputs is moving Satoshis from one payer to 10 payees, or from two payers to one payee, or from one entity to himself. Of course, some probabilistic inferences are possible based on heuristics and common patterns, but nothing can be proven with public time chain data at the individual transaction level. While having one or more entities controlling the outputs is trivial, Having more entities controlling the inputs is a little bit trickier, requiring some real-world coordination among all the payees before the transaction gets broadcasted. Luckily, though, the atomicity of Bitcoin transactions is such that this process doesn't require any trust among different unknown payees. The fungibility factor this fungibility feature of Bitcoin transactions has been part of Bitcoin's design since the very beginning, but its privacy implications were explicitly pointed out by different contributors only later on. Finally, in 2013, the label CoinJoin was created by Gregory Maxwell to refer to the best practices a Bitcoin wallet should implement in order to fully leverage such pre-existent internal fungibility. Many variants of the technique have been proposed over time. PayJoin, JoinMarket, CoinSwap, P2EP, and ZeroLink implemented in wallets Wasabi and Samurai. All with the same goal, taking advantage of the fundamental fungibility of the protocol. 
Another dynamic with the potential of boosting Bitcoin's privacy is its layerization. Upper layers of the protocol stack, like the Lightning Network, don't need to use the time chain to confirm every single transaction. Rather, transactions are only used as anchors to open and close contracts that are enabling payments elsewhere. Satoshi already imagined such kinds of, quote, payment channels early on. Quote, the parties hold this transaction in reserve and, if need be, pass it around until it has enough signatures. They can keep updating a transaction by unanimous agreement. The party giving money would be the first to sign the next version. If one party stops agreeing to changes, then the last state will be recorded at in lock time. If desired, a default transaction can be prepared after each version, so in minus one parties can push an unresponsive party out. Intermediate transactions do not need to be broadcast. Only the final outcome gets recorded by the network. Just before in lock time, the parties and a few witness nodes broadcast the highest sequence transaction they saw. End quote. This did not turn out to be the exact way payment channels have been introduced. It was flawed, but they are now a common tool for many Bitcoin users. They can be used directly or collectively via routing. While often presented as a scalability solution, the Lightning Network and in general Layer 2 technologies have the big privacy advantage of massively reducing the amount of public information available on the time chain. Starting off on the wrong foot. Of course, it was not trivial to implement privacy best practices in everyday Bitcoin wallets and tools. First of all, while reducing the amount of information leaked on-chain, Layer 2 techniques and CoinJoin often increase the amount of network-level information to manage and protect, mostly because of the need for real-time interactivity, up-to-date lists of reachable peers, publicly available liquidity, etc. The Lightning Network in particular was not really easy to bootstrap until a protocol upgrade was adopted by users in late 2017. While CoinJoin, unlike the Lightning Network, was possible to implement in theory since day zero, although with many practical challenges regarding coordination, liquidity, and amount obfuscation, most actual Bitcoin wallets didn't bother to find a way to do it. By not doing so, they consolidated a dangerous trend. The large majority of on-chain transactions were considered as created, signed, and broadcast by one single entity in complete control of the private keys associated with all the inputs. Bitcoin transactions started to be seen as always one-to-one -one or one-to-many. Thus, one of the most effective fungibility features of the protocol hasn't actually been turned into a wallet best practice until very recently, even though it has always been available. But there's more, unfortunately. Other, simpler best practices, included in Bitcoin's design as trivial defaults, have been mostly ignored by the tool builders who have been less concerned with privacy and more focused on user experience during the early years. One obvious example is address reuse. Satoshi's words about the anonymity of public keys were written under the assumption that users would generate a one-off address every time they received Bitcoin which would then be discarded after it's spent again and never reused. Maybe the word address itself wasn't a good choice after all, 
being often linked to permanent references, email, IBAN, ECC, while the word invoice, now used for Lightning Network transactions, would have been a cleaner choice. Implementing this design was not entirely trivial either, especially before the introduction of HD wallets, which made it easier to derive thousands of keys with just one master backup. So we ended up with massive reuse of static addresses, decreasing the entropy and facilitating analysis and de-anonymization. Users started to link the same address to their profiles on forums, social networks, and blogs. For many early users, making a payment meant giving the payee a complete overview of all their past and future financial life in Bitcoin. Another major incident was the proliferation of light clients, applications unable to download, validate, and store the time chain directly, but able to store private keys and query other nodes, in the best cases a trusted third party like a wallet provider, in the worst cases, random nodes, as in so-called SPV wallets, for the validity of the transactions involving the corresponding public keys. Besides creating a systemic risk in terms of security, these clients become a common hazard in terms of privacy. Some other minor implementation best practices have been initially overlooked by tool providers in this regard, including privacy-oriented coin selection, merge avoidance, change management, etc. But for the most part, these three practices represent the basis for the heuristics employed by chain analysis companies hired by eavesdroppers to spy on Bitcoin users. As of today, most of these problems have brilliant technical solutions and modern tools that implement them. But it's difficult to push the best practices, which sometimes present small but existent coordination costs, in an ecosystem already drugged with easy, if dangerous, shortcuts. And privacy, as they say, loves company. Even if you have the best tools and follow the best practices, it doesn't really help if you are the only one doing so. In fact, it may even hurt by making your efforts stand out in comparison, putting you under the spotlight. In part two, we'll look at some of the techniques that are threatening our privacy as Bitcoin users, common misconceptions about privacy, and finally, how innovations in Bitcoin are going to make privacy more secure and easier to maintain. This is an op-ed contribution by Giacomo Zucco. Opinions expressed are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of Bitcoin Magazine or BTC Incorporated. Great piece, and uh, I'm really excited to get into part two as well. Like I said, we're going to save that for the beginning of next week. Um, but... Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about this because fungibility is like a super important issue. And I love the the framing of the internal versus external fungibility um, and a lot of the other things that Giacomo brought up in this, this article. So let's go ahead and hit today's sponsor and then we'll jump into Guy's take. All right, so a thank you again to Bitcoin Magazine as always for the awesome stuff I've been wanting to get back to uh, this uh, little series here by Giacomo. Um, and of course, thank you to Giacomo for um, uh, writing such a good piece. One of the funniest things is, uh, I like this title, um, A Match Made in the White Paper uh, with Bitcoin and Privacy. And 
What's funny is that this is totally lost on people, I think, most of the time. It's kind of something that I'll even forget about on occasion. But And everybody is so focused on scalability and stuff like that that, you know, when they look at the peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash and that stupid argument comes up again, is like, what is cash? Bitcoin's not cash because I can't do a billion grocery transactions with it. And, you know, all that nonsense. Um, is that cash was... a about privacy you know is about having something that you owned that was yours that couldn't be confiscated that didn't have a third party that it was a bearer instrument when i handed it to you you were the owner the the owner of the keys was the owner of the coins and that it was disconnected from identity i think the the use of the word cash particularly in the cypherpunk um uh framing uh, and the community, like th this is the other thing is that this Satoshi was explaining this and showing this to a community of cypherpunks uh, and cryptographers that have been solely around creating all any sort of digital privacy, any sort of digital way to exchange value that was private and didn't have a third party. Like that was the problem for decades. Now, like all through the 90s and even prior. That was the goal. That was what that was what the cypherpunks arose from. This was all about privacy. And I think all of the elements of Bitcoin that make it powerful in so many other ways were there because there was no fundamental way to have privacy without all of those things. There's no fundamental way to have um, to secure a system that could grant privacy if you had a third party. There was no way to guarantee privacy if someone was mediating your transaction. If you had a trust, trusted third party that was um, guaranteeing your transaction or getting your transaction um, from A to B, uh, even with uh, the Digicash um, and the, the, the Chalmian uh, uh, coin join sort of thing that was set up with, um, that was supposed to actually integrate with banking and digital payments. Um, but would allow the bank to intermediate a transaction. It was really fascinating if you haven't uh, dug into it or listened to episodes where we talked about it in the past. Um, but uh, uh, DigiCash was a system where you could pay through a bank and the bank wouldn't actually have to know who you were paying or who was paying. Um, but it turned out there were always these cases where you could reverse it or you could uh, basically put a man in the middle and cause a problem. Like it was, there was no way to make it completely secure unless it was totally independent and then again anything that was sub subject to um you know tariffs or had to worry about getting across borders and was susceptible to regulation all of these things mean that privacy is not possible there's no fundamental way to guarantee privacy so they were all subpar solutions until bitcoin solved all of them until bitcoin figured out a way to have independent money. And in the effort to get cash, in the effort to create a way to transact value privately where you did not have to connect your identity to it and you did not have to use a third party, what he did is he made a revolutionary monetary tool. He created the first independent digital currency that also just happened to be the hardest currency that's ever existed. Anyway, I'm getting a little sidetracked. This isn't about privacy, but it's just kind of fascinating to see the, how these things come about and how he solved so many problems 
with one focus, essentially like focused so narrowly, like in the whole cypherpunk space that this was about privacy. It always has been. And the number of problems that were overcome, the, the incredible thing that was invented and discovered in Bitcoin in uh, attempting to achieve that goal. The underlying aspect or, or nature of Bitcoin that makes it pseudonymous or anonymous, whichever, whichever way you want to say it, um, pseudonymous is kind of the fix because people incorrectly thought that, oh, if they just sent a transaction using Bitcoin, nobody could know what was going on when obviously there are lots of connections that can be made and inferences that can be made from the um, uh, Bitcoin uh, from observing the Bitcoin network, which we hope um, with time will essentially go away or become easily deniable, um, particularly with the, the separation of inputs from being a single individual. I think that's going to be a, a major part in um, obtaining privacy, again, at the base layer uh, moving forward. But I like that Giacomo frames this as a internal fungibility and internal uh, privacy by default is that there's nothing about bitcoin that cares who you are like just by its nature it is locked to a cryptographic key and it is unlocked with a cryptographic key it doesn't care what is behind that key at all it could be a computer it could be a thousand different people it could be one person it could be a crook it could be the president of the United States. It could be a nine-year-old kid in Bangladesh. It doesn't matter. It is a cryptographic key, and there is nothing that can deny. That's the only thing it cares about. And in that lies the fact that every sort of loss of privacy is, in fact, an inference. It is a, it is a guess, an estimated uh, or educated guess as to... Um, what those connections are when certain information is linked and that uh, leaked and that information is almost always leaked by some third party like KYC AML regulation with an exchange all of these services and all these people that you have to deal with um, become essentially uh, honeypots a both honeypots because they have to collect uh, information for all of their customers but then also just um, natural adversaries in the attempt to secure user privacy, to, to secure uh, sovereignty, which is what this is about. And privacy is one thing that people, I cannot stress enough, people are always like, oh, you know, if you don't have anything to hide, privacy is security, period. They are not, they are not either or, it is, there's nothing inseparable about the two. You are not secure at all if you have no privacy. End of story. There is no, oh, I'm going to give up all of my privacy, but just to the good guys, and then I'll be safer. And that's based on the incredibly naive and clearly obvious fallacy of the fact that we can just tell who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Which is ridiculous, because if that were the case, well, then no one would ever get robbed or hurt or anything, because we would just avoid all the bad guys. And then, like Giacomo said, even if you're supposedly just giving it up to government institutions and trusted exchanges, all that does is um, open up the avenue to be hit by um, repressive governments, um, 
hit by censorship and uh, corrupt institutions that, you know, force the hand of somebody else or hackers and eavesdroppers and spies and malware and all the other things. All you're doing is giving up your, you're putting your sensitive data in more places and in front of more people that shouldn't be involved in, the, in, uh, in needing any of that information and inherently would not be needed whatsoever. You are adding faults to your system. You are adding new points of attack and attack vectors and a far, far broader uh, surface of um, vulnerability to something that doesn't even have it inherently. And when Giacomo kind of pers- uh, lays the perspective of this, I love that he goes into the fact that like money, money must have privacy. In fact, that's part of its nature. Um, that's what makes money money. Uh, and like, so he goes into his whole section about fungibility. And this is one of the key characteristics of money that you'll see anywhere if you look up Hayek or um, uh, Mises or anything like that. If you look, any, look into anyone who tries to detail out what those characteristics of money are, fungibility is a critical one. And one thing about fungibility is that it is necessarily so that someone cannot point at one Bitcoin and say it has a history which makes it unequal to someone else's or some other Bitcoin somewhere. Same with cash, same with a bank account, like any, any sort of monetary instrument is that if, you know, if I've got cash, it doesn't matter. Like they talk about like, you know, 80% of cash or something like that has cocaine in it or some ridiculous thing. Um, but like, you know, nobody has to care. Nobody has, it's cash. Like that's what makes it an endlessly exchangeable good. That what, that's what makes it one of the most liquid and saleable goods in the entire economy is that it's completely devoid as a bearer asset, as something where if you hold it, you are its owner and it is, it is indistinguishable from all the other money. Those are explicitly why it can facilitate so much commerce, that can aggregate so much information in the economy from so many different people. It's because all of us have this one thing which uh, is, is simply equal by all measures. And he's right. We talked about it like in a couple of past episodes about how the, the whole know your customer, um, KYC, AML regulation and stuff and then also the the nature of the third party third party mitigation um that's essentially forced into our financial transactions is that it it puts the consumer and the service at odds it it puts the service provider thinking that their customer is an enemy that their customer is someone to be afraid of which is a dangerous thing to do to a market relationship one that's naturally a beneficial one that's naturally like we want to cause as, cause each other as little trouble and as little complication as possible, uh, and think of the massive amount of inefficiency that that has placed at every single stage in this economy in the market for finance. I love I love his the the Oppenheimer's um uh, framing of it that there are. There's an economic ends, or excuse me, an economic means to obtain value, and that is with your own labor and with um, exchange of that labor with voluntarily with someone else's, and then through forcible appropriation, 
through the political means of obtaining wealth. And uh, I've always thought that that's, <laughs> that's how I've seen it for a while now, is that there is a political means to obtain wealth, and there is an economic means to obtain wealth. And what we have done is we have made our entire society of the political means. Um, and the Federal Reserve is a perfect example of this. The money printer go burr. Like, so everyone, the, the people just incessantly by no ends talking about how this is a libertarian disaster drive me crazy because all we have done is politicize every aspect of this economy, every part of the market, every dollar that goes into any subsidy and corporate bailout and uh, corporate loan and a completely violated and manipulated price of time, price of capital in the market. Just the obvious, massive scope of the politicization of wealth in this country. It's almost mind-blowing that that simple truth is lost on so many people. This is why I'm think, I think more and more that Bitcoin is a necessity. It, it, it is our only way to solve so many of these problems. Um, because there's just too many big problems to solve. Uh, and if we're not solving the foundation, if we're not solving them syst systemically, we're not solving them at all. One of those, one of the, one of the fascinating, I think, um, consequences of limiting the Bitcoin block size is that essentially the number one, the largest avenue for de-anonymizing the, the blockchain, the time chain. I love that Giacomo calls it time chain. Uh, much better word. And that's actually uh, what Satoshi called it. Satoshi never actually used blockchain. Uh, blockchain just kind of came about uh, sometime later. So fun fact there is that uh, Satoshi actually referred to it as a time chain. So I recommend we all call Bitcoin a time chain. And to be perfectly honest, it's actually a better representation of what it does. It records a chronology of past time and then makes it irreversible. Time chain is a great way to describe what that is. But the largest avenue to de-anonymize the time chain is through um, transaction heuristics. It's just look at a transaction on the chain, and because we can assume, uh, because he talks about like, you know, all these like, best practices that we could have been doing from the start, but um, obviously that never got implemented. We started reusing addresses. Um, that's a really cool point that he brings up about like he should have been calling them invoices rather than addresses. Um, and, uh, and I love that lightning is, is really changing the dynamic there, but because of that, you know, all of these things, all of these, what should have been default privacy measures basically just never got implemented because it was just easier not to. Uh, and another thing that he brings up actually that most people don't know about is that Having a static backup of your Bitcoin wallet wasn't even easy back in the day. I remember when HD wallets came out, and I was thinking, I thought it was just a fascinating thing, is that you would have, um, I, think that's, I think that was actually what caused the derivation path. Like, like I think that's when the derivation path actually arose, which you might not have any idea what, what that is, but basically you've got a set of instructions for how to generate keys, so that when you uh, back up your wallet, um, you can back up your master key once and you can always regenerate the same addresses um, in your wallet 
when you restore it on a new device or in a new wallet. And this is because your, uh, your public key, um, well, your, your addresses, um, just like he calls, you know, invoices, whatever you want to call them, they're generated randomly, right? So if, and there's essentially an unlimited number of them to, to a degree, you know, it's like 256 bits, right? So you could, you could continue to make invoices until the end of the universe. Um, and if you weren't generating them the same way and you just kind of generated them at random, well, then you're never going to find, you could get paid and then just, if, if you didn't keep track of where you got paid, of what your invoice, like your generation number was, your hash number, um, you just, it's just gone. It's, it's gone like a private key. You just, I mean, you just have to generate over and over and over and over and over again. You might never find it. So original wallets would actually, you would generate a hundred, um, invoices you generate a hundred addresses and then after you use them up you'd have to generate another 100 and your backup would no longer be synced your your backup would no longer be it'd be out of date so you'd have to do all your backups again using the exact same wallet with the exact same keys hd wallets was actually a huge thing is that you just you backed it up once and you could you know take it offline you could never have to worry about it again you could just use public keys from then on out and get those 12 words, those 24 words later, and then always regenerate these same addresses um, and find all your coins again. So it kind of made perfect sense that we didn't focus on all these privacy methods and technologies because we had, there was a lot of problems to solve, you know? And whatever our fault is, unfortunately, of humans wanting everything to be easy to use, um, and, and valuing convenience over the trade-offs that it, you know, provides or the trade-offs that it has endlessly go to the most convenient and easiest, quickest solution. It might work against us on, you know, many occasions, but it at least gets the system working to start benefiting in the incremental sense. And I think that's kind of what happens is we have these like large fundamental shifts in technology that get us to this new plateau. But then we completely screw it all up again and we shortcut things and we uh, make a whole lot of trade-offs that we don't realize the severity of. And then we have to do, you know, a new layer, a new, uh, reach a new plateau with some uh, larger shift um, in the actual ecosystem. And, and that's where, I, again, my whole original point for this was that making the block size small actually forces us to aggregate as much information as possible to put to take data off of the chain which is the current way to best de-anonymize someone's history and um or someone's transactions and of course connect it to the rest of their transactions the rest of their history and that is one thing that i've talked about numerous times on this show um but it always keeps coming back is that the layer two technologies may very well be uh, just by the nature of how they scale, how they have to scale, they provide scalability by removing data from the, the time chain, by not having to put data on the chain. In doing so, you necessarily get privacy from the typical, uh, the typical, typical vulnerabilities of observing the time chain, of observing the Bitcoin system. And it, it, uh, it trades uh, chain analysis, chain analysis with 
network analysis, which is much harder, much more obscure, much less. Um, uh, the specifics are very, very hard to pinpoint. And because Lightning Network, just as the example of our layer two, that's you know already working uh, pretty amazingly, um, is that everything's onion routed by default. So inherent to the system is a huge degree of privacy um, that's a benefit over, over the time chain, over the, over the base layer. And I, I think that's going to be a massively, massively undervalued benefit to the Lightning Network that people are just not, not properly accounting for or realizing, I think. So like Giacomo said, is we did start off on the wrong foot a bit. Um, and there's been a lot of changes in this regard, and, and uh, I love that so many of the Bitcoin, so many of the Bitcoin developers and everything are still so incredibly focused on privacy and see and understand the privacy is security rule that that this is this is an all or nothing game. Like we can't, this is not something that we can trade off. This is not something that we can give up. Because it's inherent to the money. It's inherent to the security of the system. If we are trading the fact that we cannot have privacy, if we're, if we're giving up our privacy, we are giving up everything. But we're not going to have to. Um, and I think we're going to have many, many different ways to pull this off. And the fact that we've got so many developers with that mindset, with an adversarial mindset, um, and the huge number of tools that we'll be digging into in part two um, that are on the horizon to solve these problems. And the fact that due to limited data, it necessarily, that, that's the big thing, is that the one thing that really hits all Bitcoin transactions, that makes the heuristics easy and the analysis easy to follow when looking at the chain, is the fact that every input is assumed as one person. And I think it's not long before that is a thing of the past. Um, before almost every transaction is a group of people. That it's a settlement of uh, layer two technologies. It's a, it's a settlement of some other side chain or some group of transactions that occurred in some sort of a smart contract or a layered uh, situation. And we're seeing multi-sig. We're seeing uh, so many technologies that are making that available now that are, are in fact um, making it better and realigning the incentives, realigning the cost. Because one major hassle with privacy is that it has always come with additional costs. So if since the loss of privacy, the cost cannot be seen immediately. In fact, in, in, the, in the short term, the cost of a loss of losing your privacy is almost non-existent. You wouldn't know until it's like it's like insurance. Like you don't know that not having insurance is a giant cost until six years from now when a hurricane destroys your house and you don't have insurance. You don't pay that cost until the hurricane comes. So privacy is always something that in retrospect, when you lose, when you finally pay the cost, it's enormous. And it could be disastrous for some people, particularly with despotic governments and authoritarian governments and the way they're going now. Holy crap. It's gotten so much worse. Just with this corona chaos, every government now apparently feels that they have the right to control everything, dominate everything, and look and micromanage at 
every single thing anybody does. Um, it's getting kind of creepy. China is not the society I want to live in. You know, I don't want a social credit system, so let's not import it. Huh? That'd be great. And truthfully, I think we're seeing this. Um, we're seeing us lose that privacy. I, I think we're watching the process play out. We're watching the road to serfdom kind of on fast forward right now. And, and I think it should be clear where this goes if we do nothing. We do have a choice here. I, there was somebody I was having a conversation with not too long ago. And um, I actually think it was one of the guys in the Crypto Economy crew had shared a conversation with their friends. And this is something that comes up all the time. It's the, the feeling of helplessness out there is that just we have nothing. We, sh we just have no option. And we're just watching all of this happen. And, uh, and that was what this conversation went. It's like, oh, well, we're losing all our freedoms and we're losing our privacy. But, you know, what do you do? There's nothing you can do about it. Not true. Not true. And in fact, that is exactly the mentality that will get us all of those problems, that will get us a social credit system, that will get us a government spying program that could not be, that will know that you have colon cancer before you do. That is not a world I want to live in. And it is a fallacy to think that there's nothing we can do about it because there is a choice. That's why we're here. That's why, we're That's why you're listening to this show. That's why I'm doing this show is because we do have a choice and it makes all the difference in the world specifically for us, for us as individuals, for our family to protect ourselves from that future. But it's up to us to actually use Bitcoin. It's up to us to learn about these new systems. You know, that would be the worst thing. That would be the worst thing to happen is that if we built all of the solutions we needed and people just didn't care, that we lost it all to apathy. By God, I am not going to be part of that crowd. And I hope, I hope that you're here because you're not going to be a part of that either. So with that, let's go ahead and close this one out. Ranted uh, enough about this and we'll be hitting privacy again. Uh, probably within days, <laughs> maybe even before we hit part two of this series from Bitcoin Magazine and Giacomo Zucco. It has always been one of the most important issues for me. Um, it's a critical element for a good money, and uh, I think it's necessary. I think it's necessary for the future to be better rather than worse, and I'm incredibly hopeful. I think we've had more potential to solve these problems, to actually get back our privacy, to create a digital foundation for rights that we have lost in the physical world. I think we have a greater opportunity than we ever have. Um, and Bitcoin, Bitcoin has what has, is what has laid that in our lap. We would be fools to squander it. Um, so with that, you better, be, you better be stacking your Bitcoin, man. You, you, you better be riding the wave into the future that you want, not the future that someone else is going to push on you. That is why Swan Bitcoin. Start your Bitcoin savings plan. And if you, you know, come into a couple of thousand dollars or whatever because of, you know, pulled out of retirement or whatever, go ahead and just stack it, you know, make a big purchase. That's fine. But 
You absolutely need to have a savings plan for the long term, one that is recurring and easy. Swan Bitcoin is that place. So use the note, uh, the note, use the link in the show notes and that'll take you there. And it will also tell them that I sent you um, and that will help out the show. And I'll love you forever. So do it. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, check out, I'll have the link to the original here. If you want to get a head start on part two, um, I'll have the link for both of them to Bitcoin Magazine in the show notes. So don't forget to check all that stuff out. And it'll also be on the Twitter post. And uh, I've also been posting to Instagram. So if you haven't seen it, I'm finally, I'm finally doing the Instagram thing. I hate doing work and uh, getting stuff right on mobile. So it's taken a while. But uh, yeah, if there's any of those Instagram people out there, uh, well, now you can get the crypto economy up there as well. So <laughs> I'm crypto economy guy over there. A huge thanks to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network for sharing this out with their audience and for the awesome shows that they have over there. Um, and of course, to Swan Bitcoin for sponsoring and making the Audible of the Bitcoin space available to all you guys. Um, all right. Thank you, everybody. I love you all. Uh, don't forget that if you want to join the Crypto Economy crew and hang out with the rest of the awesome Bitcoiners we have in that gang, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash the crypto economy or if you just want to make a donation however you want to do it um that's fine just send me the the invoice or the transaction id just so i can prove and um or know that it was you and i'll uh, send you a link and you can jump in with the crew so uh, don't forget you can do that and don't forget to subscribe and i will catch you all tomorrow with another episode until then take it easy guys <laughs> <laughs>